This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Over the weekend, we had a, um, a cultural festival that got quite violent in Toronto. So this isn't your regular span of, did someone get stabbed in Toronto over the weekend or did someone get shot? You hear me say this all the time. Big cities will have big city problems and some of it ends up being um, violence. But there was a uh, Eritrean festival and I don't... I know many of you, I won't give you a long history or geography lesson about Eritrea, but it's important to know that um, that there's a lot of controversy. And when festivals have been held for Eritrea, either for the support of the government right now or for people who are rebellious towards the government, do understand um, that there's been a conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea that's lasted close to 20 years. Um, there's been an insurgency. There have been attempted coups. Um, the Eritrean government has been, um, you know, blacklisted for a lot of human rights violations. They're inhumane when they pe- put people in prison. There's gender-based violence. There's sexual violence. Um, and this is from absolutely independent people getting into Eritrea, uh, either known or unknown, and looking at these situations and saying, huh, people just tend to disappear. People are detained arbitrarily. Again, again, we got our own issues. We don't have that. We don't have that. So when you do raise your voice and you say, ah, how free are we really in Canada? You're a load freer than you are in Eritrea. Let's just put it that way. But um, this just seemed like the slam dunk of the century here. When I, you know, when you double back, it's easy to say now, we sh- someone should have seen this coming. But here's the thing. The organizers of the cultural festivals this weekend did see it coming. They did know there was going to be trouble and they asked for more police protection. Now, um, let me point out this. There's only so far the police can go. And when uh, when Toronto decides to spread out their police, remember, when, when you're asking for protection like it's a massive sporting event, or the the G20s in town. You've got political leaders coming in in um, you know, black Cadillac Escalades, and your goal is to make sure that no ill fate or even broken windows of those cars happen, or or nobody gets close enough to be jostled or threatened. That's what you need police protection for. We are debating constantly how much police protection does this need and does that need. Police obviously are contracted out to to you know, be busier at something like the CNE in the street after a major sporting event. There was a quite a debate about the uh, Pride Parade this year and for Pride Weekend in the city of Toronto at the end of June, where the organizers said, we need more police protection. It's not safe. They're allowed to say that. They're allowed to think that. But eventually, um, you, like there's a there's a baseline of protection where you say, well, is that enough? And this got off to a bad start right from the beginning. Now, let me point this out. Um, there have been confrontations in Sweden where this has happened. 50 people injured, violently so. In Seattle, there are Eritrean protesters who say the cultural events offer support to this terribly repressive government. Okay? And if you're all about people being able to speak freely, that's great. Once you start like wailing on uh, people in a park with metal poles, once you start tearing down their property, once you start lighting things on fire, and once nine people are sent to the hospital with ambulances, 
um, to me, that's that's end of end of festival time. It's not great. Some people who who were there organizing the festival were a little disappointed. Huh, no more festival. But I'm sorry, it's fairly obvious the public can't be protected here. I mean, that seemed patently obvious. And you don't get you don't have some inherent right for your festival to be protected like it's the G20 summit or it's a it's a NBA championship parade. Here's one of the organizers. Um, telling his tale of woe. I don't blame him for being uh, uh, disappointed, but he's on the wrong side of this. Here's what he said. The attack was totally uh, unprecedented and improvised. The victim is being re-victimized by revoking the license. Okay, um, but there's no other option at that particular point. And by the way, when the license was revoked for the park, what happened then? The pro-Eritrean government festival, which is what it is, okay, so debate that amongst yourselves, decided to move to a downtown Toronto hotel. The good thing is at that point is that all the trouble stopped and everybody was, oh, that that didn't happen? Oh, there was another violent standoff in the street. Oh, there were cops, like hundreds of cops lining the street in front of the hotel because of this conflict. Fantastic. Like, at a certain point in time, we'll have to ask ourselves, will the Eritrean Cultural Festival be welcome back in the city of Toronto? And I applaud the city of Toronto for pulling the license. They had no choice. Innocent people got hurt, maybe on both sides of this particular conflict. I saw the video outside the Sheraton Hotel on Sunday, and I see the organizers again lamenting, this isn't fair. The city's not being fair to us. You can't protect the people attending your festival. There's a woman who's got a story about a 72-year-old father of hers um, who just got cracked over the head again by one of by a metal pipe over and over again. He's apparently clinging to life in the hospital. One person was stabbed. Eight others in hospital. It's too much. That's too much. And so if the city, basically, here's my front, here's my bottom line here. Here's my uh, um, fence that I'll, uh, I'll sit on. When they have to send when when there's cops there, that's one thing. When the riot squad has to be sent to Earl's Court Park, festival over. That's it. No more festival for you. Okay. No more soup and no more festival. Skirmishes started breaking out, by the way, around ten o'clock in the morning on Saturday. Not nine o'clock at night. Not the second day of a long weekend. Ten in the morning. Who wants to fight at ten in the morning? Who wants to hit people with metal pipes at ten in the morning? Very aggressive protesters. That's who. That's who. So look, um, yeah, the country is deemed as one of the most world's the world's most repressive um, when it comes to human rights. They got independence from Ethiopia three decades ago. Again, you don't need too much of a history lesson to know that this is contentious. But again, in the city of Toronto, they have every right to say that's it, no more, and you don't get a license again. We wouldn't. By the way. There are many cultural groups, I think you'd agree, we wouldn't even give a second opportunity to. Oh, you're moving your, uh, your your potential chaos and disorder to a hotel downtown where we have tourists and we have good people working the front desk or being valets or working security and all this mayhem and madness is going to come there? Nah, sorry, it isn't. Okay. There's enough going on in the city. And that's not their fault. That's not the protesters' fault. That's not the people that want to have the Eritrean festivals part. But the city did everything that they should have done shutting this down. Now, after a quiet week, I'll say this, a quiet week for Olivia Chow, 
quiet week. It was a bit louder week last week. I think this is something she should say something about today. I think when you're the mayor of the city, you explain to the Eritrean community where you are. You don't have to take a side on, a, again, a very, very contentious issue. This isn't a very simple, well, they're right and they're wrong issue. The government does get filleted and barbecued on a regular basis for not being a good government and being quite terrible to their people. And the people showing up with the blue T-shirts on with the Martin Luther King slogan on the back, um, they've got a right to voice their opinion. But it did look like this was out of control. This was tremendously violent. There were physical clashes. This wasn't, oh, you think this? That's fine. We think this instead. And uh, we'll, we'll do our thing and you do yours. That's not what this was. It was bonkers. It was a riot. I have no problem describing it as a riot in, uh, in, er- in Earl's Court Park, because that's what it was. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I haven't been to a university, haven't sat in a university uh, like seminar room, more than a lecture hall. Uh, when you get to third or fourth year, your classes are smaller, right? You're just in there with like 20 people, 22 people. Um, but I, two courses I loved were Latin American politics and African politics. And you realize how distinct and different things are. And though I didn't write a paper on Eritrea, a couple people did. And this was at a time when um, Eritrea was looking to make the move and uh, become independent, if you will, of Ethiopia. Like it's been a very stable situation now and that said not just a, just a, in terms of independence but certainly not within its own borders and we had a scenario happen in the city of Toronto where there was an Eritrean festival which they've had for years and it was at an Earl's Earl's Court Park and like I mean before it even got started not deep into the day not into the evening 10 a.m. Saturday I would assume it started at 9 a.m. or 9 30 a.m. and it kicked off and there were problems it like it turned into a riot a lot of violence a lot of problems and we documented that in the six o'clock hour this morning more on that uh with our next guest who wrote a book called understanding eritrea inside africa's most repressive state he is martin plowed and he joins us right now on toronto today martin thanks very much for the time i really appreciate it pleasure greg eritrea always has seemed um complicated we like i said had this incident here but i it's been documented there's been incidents in u.s cities there was a huge um outpouring of violence in sweden when eritreans tried to celebrate it seems like pro-government and anti-government forces are going to clash in a lot of major cities if festivals like this are to happen well look it's not really a complicated story at all uh the eritreans fought for 30 years for their independence they were led by President Isaiah Safawerki uh, comes to power in 1991. They get independence in 1993. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Instead of producing the democracy they'd all been promised and hoped for, he turns it into the most repressive state in Africa. And believe me, that's doing something. Uh, they have never had an election. They have no parliament. They have no independent judiciary. And people, frankly, are thrown into wars. There's just been one in northern Ethiopia. And they flee from the country in order to find sanctuary. But when they get abroad, they find that the the government, the regime, still comes after them. And that is what these protests are about. Yeah, and that's the you you nailed it in terms of where they stand. And and though there are certainly 
corrupt countries all over the planet. Um, Eritrea, for being democratic, draw really poor scores. There's something called Freedom House, and they put reports out. Eritrea gets a one out of 40 on political rights and a two out of 60 on civil liberties. They really don't do well by their own people. No, absolutely. I mean, they're right down at the bottom there with North Korea. And that is how, uh, how the situation is. But when they get abroad, they find that the regime continues to push them to pay money uh, to pay. They have to pay a 2% tax if they want to have anything to do with it. If you want a birth certificate, if you want to sell your grandmother's home, anything, you have to pay a 2% tax going back to the date you arrived in the country. Now you can imagine these are huge sums of money for poor people, many of whom are asylum seekers or refugees. They've saved up a little bit of money and the regime just takes it. And these people mm-hmm. are, who now live in exile are furious that the people who, are, who have been treating them so badly back home then come and put these on these huge festivals in the Sheraton, for goodness sake. Yeah, I, I, I watched the coverage, so I'm glad you're, you're very aware of what happened here in Toronto because I saw Saturday, they obviously shut this down at 10 a.m., and then Sunday I'm hearing, oh, the, the Eritrean Canadians who organized the festival are really upset. They feel discriminated against by the city for, for shutting their festival down, and I'm like, a riot just took place. We would take any group from any country and reassess whether we were going to let their festival continue if people were were getting beaten with metal pipes and, and siding and, and 10 people are getting transported by ambulance to the hospital. This was a huge story this weekend in our city. No, I understand it. And been, this has been the same story being played out in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Sweden, and here in Britain as well. And the Eritrean regime have a group called Eri Blood, and they literally go after anybody who steps out of line. They align to the ruling party, and they not only spy on people, they will attack them if they protest. And people, the young Eritreans who have fled their own country, taking huge risks to get out of it. There's a shoot-to-kill uh, policy on the border. They die in the Mediterranean. They starve to death in, and, and a, a drought in the, in the Sahara. But they do manage to get out. And then they still find they treated this way. That's why there's so much anger. Martin Plout is joining us. Uh, his book, Understanding Eritrea. Uh, we're talking about uh, the situation in the city with him. Should a city like Toronto, you know, global uh, international city, be a little more aware of the background when when they grant a license? Because this looks like a very pro-government. That's the that's the narrative anyway, is that it's a pro-government celebration, which is why all these protesters showed up. We wouldn't have done that with South Africa's regime in 1988. We wouldn't allow, I think, a pro-North Korean government uh, uh, party in one of our parks. Should we be reconsidering doing it for a country like Eritrea? Well, it's, uh, you know, I wouldn't wish to uh, <laughs> advise the Toronto uh, City or or the Canadian government. But, you you know, I'm a South African by origin, and I certainly spent many years uh, outside South Africa House in Trafalgar Square here in London uh, protesting against the the South African government uh, for what it was doing, uh, you know, with apartheid. And so, you know, it's up to each government to make their own mind, but the least you can do as a city is just look at the website. It's not difficult to find the news about Eritrea and to find out what kind of government they are 
and what kind of people you're dealing with. We've talked a lot here, uh, Martin, about the Chinese uh, diaspora. Um, there's obviously been some allegations of electoral interference at the federal level. There's a very strong, um, vocal Chinese-Canadian population in Toronto. So when I bring up the Eritrean diaspora, there's 36,000 Canadians that report Eritrean ancestry. I'm going to go ahead and argue that um, the largest number would be in the greater Toronto area. Um, do, do these diaspora feel intimidated by the Eritrean government? Do Are they funded by the government? Why would there be so many people supportive of such an obstructionist uh, uh, regime that doesn't respect human rights? Well, look, let, let me be honest. There are uh, many people in the diaspora who do support the government uh, because they believe that uh, the, the president was the person who brought them independence and from uh, Ethiopia. So I'm, I'm not trying to deny that. It's the problem is with the younger generation who left more recently. They feel that they've literally just been trashed and that they have no future in the country and also abroad that they are spied on. There is plenty of information that you can find, which shows the way in which... Uh, let me give you one example. Yeah. Uh, in the Netherlands, the regime and the, uh, the uh, embassy actually put their own people into the translation unit, which the, the Netherlands government was running in the refugee agencies. So as soon as they started talking about what had happened to them in their own language, it was translated into the Netherlands and a report was filed with the Eritrean government. So you can see how the links are made. There are spies in every community who are reporting back to the government in Eritrea, and that is what people object to. It's literally like having the Stasi, the, the East German secret police, in your country. And the same, it's exactly the same story as many of the Chinese report, uh, certainly in Britain, about what's happened to people who fled Hong Kong, and they then spied upon. There's, I mean, in the last week, there's been a huge bit of graffiti put up on the walls in, 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 uh, in London, which is pro the, the Chinese government. That doesn't just happen. It's so organized. Yeah, I'm so glad you made that uh, that that contrast and distinction. If I if if you and I found out there was going to be an Eritrean festival in London this weekend or Paris this weekend or Berlin this weekend, would we almost expect trouble to kick off? Like I said, it's happened at a lot of these festivals involving this these same disputes. Well, what I would expect is that the Eritrean opposition would first write to the city and write to the, uh, the police force saying, look, this is a problem. Please don't let this go ahead. That's the first thing I would expect. But if the, if the uh, local authorities don't take any heed of this, then, yes, I'm afraid you can expect a confrontation because the young people are just, I mean, let me just read a couple of sentences out there latest uh, manifesto. We're tired of being portrayed as war criminals, diehard fanatics, war machines full of hatred. We're filled, we are fed up with indifference with, the with which the international community treats us, ignoring our situation, our work with the regime together. That's what they're, they're, they, are, yeah. they are fed up about. They just put this out. They are absolutely furious yeah. and will not accept it anymore. Martin Plout, uh, the BBC's World Services former Africa editor, also senior researcher at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies. I th can't thank you enough for coming on. It's a fascinating topic for me and incredibly timely as well for our listeners. Thanks for coming on the show. Great pleasure. Lovely to have him. Um, I, t I tell you, again, I don't expect every city council, I don't expect Olivia Chow, I don't expect all Olivia Chow's advisors to know the history of Eritrea 
But I, I also think you just can't rubber stamp cultural festival, cultural festival, cultural festival, and just stamp them all because they're not all created equally and they don't all bring the same, not baggage, but they don't all bring the same potential and potency for something that gets violent. And this one did. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Today is like today's not the big day. But you could get an email today if you registered for Taylor Swift tickets. Let me document this process. It's a very difficult thing to lay out. But the verified fan on sale begins tomorrow at 11 a.m. Oftentimes they put tickets on at 10. (sighs) They're doing it this way to make it 11 Eastern time. Um, So that is tomorrow, Wednesday, August 9th. That's right. Um, and the verified fan VIP packages. I can only imagine what you get for that. Like like a set list or you get to like stand like in the back of the Rogers Center and watch some of the sound check. You might get like a program that you'd otherwise pay like 75 bucks for some glossy photos. That also is on sale tomorrow. And uh, as documented, um, I don't know if anybody knows this. More people will have signed up for tickets then there will be tickets available. I mean, DOI with a capital D. Um, but but I am one of those people uh, as a lark and because I am an uh, Avion customer with RBC and I thought, why not? Why not? Why wouldn't I rather have the tickets to decide what I want to do with the tickets after that? Now, Lyle, who's in for Shiva this morning, you want to go to the show like really badly. You and your fiance want to be there in person quite I- considerably. I wouldn't say that I want to be there considerably, <laughs> but I have a have a funny feeling I'm going to end up being there. Why wouldn't you let? Okay, if you are so, are you on the verified fan list? And you could get an email. To, you've done the, the the proper work here, have you not? I have. I've put in the I right. put in the work. I am seeing if I get the golden ticket in my chocolate bar, which is kind of what it feels like at this point. It feels like a draft lottery. But uh, I'm I'm waiting for the email. But I am I am under the impression that I'm probably going to have to pick them up on the uh, aftermarket. I don't know. I don't know. Because only because there's so many shows. Only because there's three hundred thousand tickets. And yeah, the demand. Like honestly, let's say a million people signed up for this. Let's say a, not a million, but there's a million tickets available via the signups. Then I would make the case you got a thirty percent chance. Let's say only six hundred thousand. Uh, tickets are available via the sign-up. You got a 50% chance. I know that I did this for Bruce Springsteen in November, but then I thought, and I'm like, I've seen Springsteen a few times. I remember getting verified in the fan program, getting an email for the tickets, and then just not doing it. And I don't think I would do that if I get an email today about Taylor Swift, and I know you won't, but I I, I honestly don't think that meant, they're not going to send out. If you get an email today, I think you got a great shot. If you don't, you don't. But I think if you get an email, you're, they're not going to send it out so nine out of ten people are disappointed. We're already waiting for the TV news story where they interview somebody on the street and they're like, it's so unfair. It's so unfair. I, I, I did everything I was supposed to. I'm like, I know, but you're going to be – some people are going to be disappointed by this. Supply does not outstrip demand in this case. Oh, no, it's going. there is going to be a lot of disappointment here just because of the sheer number of people that are going to want to go to these shows. It's a perfect storm. There's been so much publicity leading up to this about will she or will she not come to Canada. Then she announces not only is she coming, she's coming for six shows only in one city. 
And that's the finale of the Eras Tour. This whole huge performance that has taken over the news cycle. Everything entertainment has been Taylor Swift now for, it feels like, months. So the fact that it's all capping off in Toronto for six night, nights at the Rogers Centre, it's just yeah. this perfect storm of there's never going to be enough tickets. They could have another two or three shows, and there's no, still going to be thousands I, of people, I, I think, left out. I I do think there's a cap on how many shows she could do here in the city, Gord. Maybe I'm yeah. nuts. I do. Like, she can't do ten shows and have demand for the ninth and tenth show be what it would be for the first or second show. On the secondary market or even buying them tomorrow. I don't think she could sell out the Rogers Center 10 times. I can't even believe I'm saying this because nobody's ever tried to sell it out four or five times, let alone six. Nobody's ever tried, let alone done it. Yeah, that's what what we were talking about. We were scratching our our heads trying to figure out who's done it like three times, three concerts in a row. Some people have done three Skydomes and three exhibition stadiums, but that's it. Three. Exactly. Like 120,000 tickets. So to double that and then to, to push it to two or three more, I think I agree with you. But, I mean, I think I'm doing this city a tremendous service by stepping back and letting uh, others You're, have my <laughs> chance at a ticket. But why you, you could have you could have got you, you could have got in and then and then sold the tickets to Lyle. because he, he doesn't sound very confident. Yeah, I could have, I guess. <laughs> but then, you know, then I have to give Lyle a discount because I I know him. Well, if you don't want to go by the way. Yeah, <laughs> listeners are asking me via D. If you don't want to go, why don't you let your fiance go with somebody else? That's part of that's part of the the trust tree that that a, a, an eventual marriage brings. I, right. I go think- to the damn concert with another person. I think my presence has been requested by what? her. That's oh. why she really why? wants me to be. There. I don't know, especially because it's a concert with a woman who sings primarily about being single and hating on ex-lovers. So I'm not quite sure if I'm being sent a message. I don't know why my presence is requested. But um, I there's part of me that's excited to go just because it is the it's biggest, an event. It's I, the I, biggest I, concert I, that's rolled through in I would say decades. I'm sure some people will treat it as an event. And Tor- by the way, Toronto's a very you notice that when something is just, well, this is the thing to do. I'm going to make the case early days, and Gord, you'd remember this more because you were here, is the Blue Jays, when they moved into Sky Dome, were a thing where I noticed people, like I loved baseball uh, more back then maybe even than I did now, and I noticed some people would come, arrive in halfway through the second inning and leave in the sixth. Yes. But they just wanted to say they were there that night. Yep. They didn't care about the end result. Like Skydome was sort of a quote-unquote place to be the first couple of years it was open. Absolutely. And, and this and Swift show will be like that. Yes. it's you know, And then the, you got that whole FOMO, the fear of missing out, uh, of something that's going to be... Massive. I mean, we're talking about it now, and it's what a year and a half away. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is a thing. Now, by the way, remember what we talked about yesterday with the resale market. They've already there's already some tickets on StubHub for this. How I have no idea. I have no idea how people could know their row and their seat number. But um, Taylor Swift's get-in price on the November 14th show on a Thursday. I'm busy that night, by the way. I have a dinner <laughs> plan that night in November 14, 2024. Can't make it. Uh, was Lyle, it was like $2,600. It's already down to $1,700. Oh, like, wow. I really, like, seriously, people, th- th- those tickets will, again, be what the Los Angeles prices were, which is a, a your get-in price is going to be closer to 500 bucks the night of the show. That's what we're assuming. We're, we're yeah. going into it now assuming that it's going to be a thousand dollar night for two tickets and it's it's foolish to think otherwise most places i will wait till two days before jump in and usually scoop them up for like a 60 percent discount i know that's not happening here they're probably only going to get more expensive as the day shows up because if you want to be a lot of people are trying to gun for that first show 
They want to be at the first show there or they want to be at the last show. I guess so. Yeah. But famous last words, buying them on the secondary market has its own risk. And the dumbest thing to do is to buy them anytime before like July of next year. Why would you do that? Why would you pay three times the premium? They're not going to be more expensive next July or August than they are right now. People are looking to absolutely hose you and post these tickets when they get them uh, tomorrow. L- listeners telling me that there are some tickets promised for 150 bucks. I guess that there are. So uh, if 150 bucks is the cheapest ticket, um, then go nuts. Uh, all, all the best to you if you're uh, if you're able to pull that off. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. The Caribbean Carnival was on the weekend. And you know how this goes sometimes is you get politicians showing up. And uh, and they do things because they're like big base here. Lot of people. So, well, um, well, I saw some polls over the weekend. I'm going to have a conversation with you about the tone of Pierre Pauly Everett. I'm going to have a conversation about it. I really think sometimes you got to get outside your ideology and you got to get outside your lens. And when somebody who doesn't like for me, example, somebody who doesn't know me at all has never met me, doesn't work with me, says, this is what I think about. Oh, you're the that radio person. I, here's what I think about your show. I, I really take all that and sponge it up because they're coming at it with no bias. They don't know me. They have no perspective on this whatsoever. That's really valuable stuff. If you text me and you're like, I just started listening to your show and here's what I think, I have to treat it as significantly as if, if you were always listening. It, like it, it matters to me because you've got how how would I put it? Let you got some recency bias. You just heard something I said, and and you have a lens that's only about the show. Now, if I were advising Pierre Polyevra and his goal, I feel like it's his goal. I think he's mentioned it several times. Did you know that he's running for prime minister? Yeah, he's been running for prime minister for a good chunk of time. And last summer, you heard me say this a ton. Um, this is, this is Pierre's CPC leadership election to lose. Remember some people were advocating Jean Charest, he'll get it done. Well, I'm like, eh, people haven't seen him in forever and he's in his early seventies and I don't want to discriminate based on age politically, but it does influence how people vote. Your age clearly would influence you voting if a 23 year old were running for the conservative party of Canada leadership, it would be a story. It's no less of a story when somebody who's been on the earth for eight decades or is in their eighth decade is running as well. It's kind of a story in the United States of America right now. Age is a thing when it comes to politics. So if you said, ah, that's John Charest could cause some trouble for Pierre Polyev, I'd be like, I'm not so sure. The mayor, Bra- the mayor Brampton, Patrick Brown, could he get back in? Well, everything would have to fall the right way. And as it turned out, it it didn't. And there's a lot of finger pointing, a lot of accusations from a lot of different fronts about what was done and what was not done during the course of the campaign. But Brown ultimately had to drop out. So it was always going to be a little bit of a coronation for Pierre Paul Lievre as conservative leader. And I bring up the Caribbean Carnival because he was there. And I just want you to tell me you don't have to. You can love him, uh, be indifferent to him like his policies, but not be a huge fan of how he carries himself. Maybe you like how he carries himself and you don't like all his policies. Maybe it's that point being when you show up at a big thing in Toronto, in Toronto specifically, um, you don't know what kind of response you'll get. Here's the response at the Raptors parade in 2019 that the prime minister 
Justin Trudeau got at the Raptors parade. You might remember John Tory. Yeah, he's getting cheered a fair bit. He was a popular mayor. I mean, like it, it shall be spoken that he was a popular mayor. Doug Ford got introduced. He'd only been elected maybe a year. Resounding boos. He got heckled. He got screamed at. He got booed. And this was meant to be a celebratory day. Even all the, the executives, right? Larry Tannenbaum. Here's uh, George Cope from Bell. Here's Edward Rogers from, you know, Rogers. They all got like standing ovations because everybody's just so damn happy. Doug Ford, he didn't get that. Here was the response for the prime minister, which is why politicians show up at these things. The prime minister of Canada. Please welcome the right honorable Justin Trudeau. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would have thought he's coming in playing small forward against uh, and getting covered by Draymond Green the way that he was introduced there. But whatever, whatever. That's why you do those things. So I see that that something's going viral over the weekend. And Pierre Polyevre spoke at the Caribbean Carnival. Smart move being there. Saw Doug Ford there. Saw some city councilors there. And, uh, and by the way, Michael Thompson facing multiple charges, not allegations, charges of sexual assault. He's charged by the police. He was there dancing and grooving away. Right look for him? Not so sure. Uh, organizers inviting him? Also not so sure. I guess it's a free country. I guess you're innocent until proven guilty, but it is a, you know, kind of a private thing. He, they don't have to invite Michael Thompson to be there. We couldn't get him. By the way, we couldn't get him for a radio interview if we, uh, if, if we you know, uh, kidnapped his loved ones, blindfolded him, and, uh, and interrogated him under a heat lamp. We could, there, there's no way we could get him on the phone. He's happy to show up at Caribbean Carnival and boogie. But he's probably not going to do any radio interviews until these charges get settled. So you see how this works. But here's where I would give Pierre some advice here. Don't do this. Don't sound like this person you're about to sound like. Here's him addressing the crowd on the weekend at the Caribbean Carnival. Obviously, we're going through a terrible time in Canada. Life costs more. Work doesn't pay. Our housing costs have doubled. Now more than ever, we need hope. We need hope, value, and common sense to restore and bring home the Canada we love. Today, let's celebrate that Canada with the loud music, the great food, and the incredible people. Happy Caribbean Day here in Toronto. God bless all of you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, God bless us all, everyone. Thank you, Tiny Tim and Pierre Polyevre. Here's what I wouldn't do. You got it all going your way right now. Your party's 10 points in the lead in the polls. I looked at the polls over the weekend again. They're not changing. The the cabinet change, cabinet shuffle for the liberal government, no bump. Um, Justin Trudeau's separation from his wife, single dad. Well, he's a single dad now. Maybe I'll vote for him. Nah, there's no bump. And if, by the way, if you're waiting for a uh, Trudeau goes with his son to see Barbie bump, you won't get that either. It's not going to happen. 338 Canada has the Conservative Party of Canada's odds of winning the most seats in the next election. And they don't they know the election isn't tomorrow and they know the election isn't next week. They have the CPC at 90 percent. They have the liberals at nine like they this. These are different polls than anything we've seen. Anything we've seen, though, there were leads for Aaron O'Toole in the polls and there were big leads for Andrew Scheer in the polls uh, leading into the 2019 election. Here's my question for you. And you can be a, a Pierre supporter. You can be a Pierre detractor, okay? It takes all kinds. 
I that's a bad call. Don't tell everybody at the Caribbean Carnival we're going through a terrible time in Canada. Don't talk about housing. That's not what you're there for. You're there because people might be like, like how approachable he is, like how he seems to be one of us. If there is a problem connecting, connecting right now for a Justin Trudeau or a Christian Freeland, Pierre Polyevra can change that narrative and say, I'm somebody you can have a conversation with. They're winning the game on housing, by the way. There's Justin Trudeau last week uh, before the, the personal news on Wednesday. On Tuesday, maybe saying something that is going to cost him tremendously. You're going to see what he said Tuesday in every single CPC campaign ad on television, on this radio station, and on the internet. Housing's not a federal responsibility. Pierre's got to do better than that, right? He can't, you you can't say how terrible things are at the Caribbean Carnival. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. The Canadian, um, Canadian soccer landscape has a league called the Canadian Premier League. Now, some of you know about it, some of you don't. I've, I'm very in touch, I think, with the soccer community in the GTA and in Ontario. Um, I know who is what and where. Um, this league, how do I put it? it? It started in May, so about six years ago, went through what it went through on during COVID times, like most sports leagues would have done. It hasn't caught the interest level that I think the organizers had hoped. I don't know what the books look like, but I know people who are obsessed with soccer and they don't pay much attention to this league. Few do. I, I have a really tough time finding people really interested in the league. And I think that's unfortunate. They are mostly Canadian players, um, good enough to play at some level in their 20s and maybe headed towards their late 20s. Not not at the level that MLS is. Okay, It's a little bit like going to see the Toronto Marlies and recognizing, oh, oh, that person couldn't play for the Toronto Maple Leafs now, but maybe someday or they've had their moment and they're back down in the minors. It's It's kind of minor league soccer, but deemed a professional league is the best way I can put it. And we need a league like this. It's a good thing that it exists, but I don't know how much attention the average Canadian pays to it. Now, this story's remarkable that this is the case. You might know who Dwayne DiRosario is. He played for ages on Canada's national team, played, had two different tours of duty with Toronto FC, especially in the early years. His son plays for York United. What, you didn't know that? Exactly. Um, no fault again, no fault of the league zone and no fault of anyone at York United. But you'll be shocked by this part of the story. He was suspended over the weekend one month. Um, so can't play for 30 days, can't practice, can't, you know, be involved in team activities right now. Um, after testing positive for uh, THC, a component of cannabis. Uh, first of all, I know two things are happening in your brain right now. One is. I'm learning about this Canadian Premier League, most of you are saying. And even if you knew about the league, all of you are saying they test for cannabis. Yeah, they do. He did a uh, in-competition urine test on October 1st. In a million years, a million, I would never have bet or wagered that this league, <laughs> the Canadian Premier League, tests players and needs urine samples for anything, anything. But they do. So the Canadian Center for Ethics in Sport, CCES, uh, as you and I know it, uh, do this. And they sanctioned the test and he tested positive. THCs on the World Anti-Doping Agency's list of prohibited substances. But again, Osei's Di Rosario 
the boy of, of Dwayne D. Rosario, uh, was not about to go run on Canada's relay team at the Paris Olympics next year. He's playing soccer, and he's playing CPL soccer, okay? Again, you're just learning about this. If you're 9.5 out of 10 people, I would assume this morning, maybe 9.9 out of 10. Um, WADA has this prohibited list, and they don't care that Canada's legalized recreational cannabis. They just see it as another substance. Too bad. Legal in Canada, banned in sport. De Rosario's explanation, by the way, and if you care about it, I'm sort of a 6 out of 10 for caring about it, but we need these explanations sometimes. Remember Ross Rebliati's explanation at the Nagano Olympics when he tested for pot, in essence, was uh, secondhand smoke, contact high, no idea what happened. And later he said, that was just joshing. That was me. Anyway, last here's De Rosario's explanation. Last September, I unknowingly consumed THC after eating an unlabeled dessert at a dinner gathering I attended days before a match. Not to not to step on offside here, uh, but the unlabeled desserts are often the better desserts at at many dinner gatherings. They just are. I'll carry on with his statement. I understand that cannabis is legal in Canada, but is also prohibited in competition in some professional sports. I didn't intentionally eat cannabis, but I take responsibility for my actions and will abide by the sanction. This will allow me to get back on the field in the shortest time frame allowed under the CCES rules. I apologize to my club, the coaching staff, my teammates, our supporters, and my family for not being available this month. He's 22, and this is just silly. This is silly. And I agree with the York president and GM, Angus McNabb, who called the situation regrettable. That What he says is right, and what I'm about to read is dead on, dead nuts on what, what you should say about this. We are satisfied, Osei's consume the THC inadvertently and out of competition. Okay, fine. Well, we support his decision to comply with the CCS sanctions. It's disappointing as sanctions required under these circumstances. Now we're talking. We appreciate the important work done by the CCES, but we are disappointed that THC, a substance that is legal to consume in Canada, remains on WADA's prohibited list. He's the second CPL player this year. You probably already knew about the Halifax Wanderers forward banned for two years after a doping test in September. You didn't? Okay, now you do. Uh, and this wasn't cannabis. This was more of an enhancer. And by the way, anybody who has anything to do with cannabis will note, maybe for a workout recovery, players are preferring it now to opioids in the NFL. Um, players are into the stuff nonstop in the NBA. The NBA is never going to have a suspension again for cannabis, whether it's legal in that state or not. They just never will. Of all the things that are ridiculous, ridiculous um, that we spend money on that we need an organizational body for the Canadian center for ethics and sport testing athletes in a, in a league that is, is professional. The players get paid, you know, several hundred people are at the games. Like I'm not diminishing what the league is. It's, imp it's an important league and I wish more people would go. I wish I would watch more matches, but there's only so many hours in a day. My point is what an absolute waste of time. And it's silly to have to have De Rosario at this point because the name is so, you know, so well known. It's a silly thing to have to have him explain this and start talking about unlabeled desserts. It's just stupid. I can't figure out for the life of me how we benefit. How we how does how do we benefit? How does this league end up getting governed by the Canadian Center for Ethics and Sport? And by the way, yes, if if the cannabis at all is used as a painkiller 
if it's used to help players sleep at night, if it's used to rehab an injury and deal with aches, pain, soreness, you and I know many more people than we ever used to taking some form of THC, the non-hallucinogenic variety, to deal with sport injuries or aches and pains. It's not my thing. I don't. I haven't. But I think it's ridiculous for you to get punished at your workplace or for anybody to make judgments of you. Now, if you're again, if you're coming to work baked out of your brain, if you can't remember anything, if you're on the road and um, you're, you're, you've taken too much, we have a different conversation. We have a different angle here. But that's not what I see here with Osei's D. Rosario. It's a stupid enforcement of a stupid rule and, and an, an organization that, ha- that should have nothing to do with this Canadian Premier League. Nothing whatsoever.